Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Uh, With that, I'd love to invite up Kathy, who works at Moms in Prayer. She's going to read our scripture for us this morning. Yeah, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, we thank you. This beautiful passage that paints such a beautiful portrait of you. We thank you that this is who you are and who you're offering to be for each of us. Father, we thank you for partners uh, like Kathy and Moms in Prayer. We thank you for our opportunity to be a part of what you're doing, not just here in our local community, but around the world. We pray your blessing on that ministry. We pray that you'd continue to use them, that every school across this nation and even our world would be covered in prayer by moms who love you, Jesus, and have a heart for their campuses. So bless and use their ministry. Father, we think of ourselves today and those who are here, those today who need encouragement from you, we're asking that you would encourage. Those who need leading from you today, we believe that you lead us, even as the psalmist would write here in what we just read. And so lead. We pray for the continued health of our church, and we pray for those in our church community who are are hurting and grieving. God, that you, the God of all comfort, would comfort them. God, my heart's heavy this morning reading headlines about another shooting. And God, just seeing the brokenness in our world and knowing that these are people who are made in your image, who you love dearly, who have lost their lives. God, our hearts are heavy as we look towards a broken world, and we pray that you would send us, Jesus, that we, your people, would be an extension of your love and grace. Jesus, that we could put flesh upon you once again, that you'd live your life again through us to heal and to mend to bring hope and peace again. God, in our local community and even in places far from here. Jesus, we're so thankful for you today that we can be together, but that we can be with you. So we're asking that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. If in our current cultural moment, if I were to refer to you as a sheep, what comes to mind for you? (laughs) Dumb. Yeah, a follower. I mean, what's really being implied about you if that's how I referred to you? Maybe that you shouldn't be left alone to make decisions for yourself. Yes, that you blindly follow. It's, it's probably questioning your intelligence. For us, as we read the illustration that David uses here of a shepherd with his sheep, there's really nothing inside of us in our modern setting that leaps for joy at the imagery of me being a needy, dependent sheep. In fact, it can kind of feel almost insulting that this is how I am depicted. There's a shepherd turned pastor that we've been quoting from to you in this series. His name's Philip Keller, and he elaborates on this when he wrote, 
saying this, he said, sheep do not just take care of themselves, as some might suppose. They require more than any other class of livestock, endless attention and meticulous care. We might not like the idea of being compared to a sheep, but please hear me. When, Dra- when David draws this analogy and comparison, as he pens this psalm, he's drawing on the deepest and sweetest of comparisons that could come to mind for him. Because long before he was a king, he was a humble shepherd. And remember that while a shepherd, David loved his sheep enough to risk life and limb in order to care for them and nurture them. We might look and think that these are nasty, smelly, dumb, foolish animals, not known for either beauty or intelligence. But when David looked, what he saw was so different. He saw beautiful creatures that were in desperate need of his nurturing care. And David now places himself in the role of a sheep under the care of a shepherd. And you remember, he's boasting here that the Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh, the God of Israel, he's the one responsible for my care. He's bragging about the fact that he's under the watchful eye of the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. David is not saying, I have a great shepherd. He's saying, a great shepherd has me. For him to be my shepherd does not make him my possession. It means that I am in his possession. And because the Lord was his shepherd, the beautiful thing that David was able to say as he's boasting about this is that I shall not want. And these were not words that were uttered off the lips of a person who had never gone without. David experienced lack and abandonment, homelessness, deep betrayal, and loneliness. The statement was not about what David had or did not have, though, when he said, I shall not want. It was rather his confident statement about who had him. David was under God's loving care. And even when things were difficult and he had every reason to feel disappointed, he knew with confidence there was one thing no one can take from me. And that's the loving, attentive care of my shepherd. And if you want to know if he's truly your good shepherd too, then you have to ask yourself, am I able to echo David's statement of contentment that I'm not in want? And please hear me, our ability to echo that statement, it's not rooted in the ease of our life, nor the balance in a bank account, nor even the relational health or status that you have at this present moment. It has everything to do with our trust and the quality of our good shepherd's care and our confidence in his ability to lead us towards a good and bright and glorious future. The truth is my complaints about my life circumstances may not be a complaint against circumstances at all. It may be that I'm calling into question my shepherd's character and his ability to manage my care. I mean, it's true, it's been widely known and said that more never equates to enough. However, David is saying here that having him as my good shepherd is more than enough. He's saying that I might not be in control, but he is. That I don't have the kind of power that I wish I had, but that chaos is not at the helm of my life. Instead, he's confident that God, at the New Testament, we see that Jesus himself, the Prince of Peace, is the one in control. I might not know what the future holds, he's saying, but I know the one who holds my future. And he calls himself my shepherd and me his sheep. 
You see, the beauty is that life with God is what we experience and enjoy as the sheep of his pasture. And that is why we can say, I shall not be in want. There's a great book I've been reading as we've walked through Psalm 23 that was written in 1845 by a pastor in Great Britain named John Stevenson entitled, The Lord, Our Shepherd. And here's how he said it. He said, how glorious is the being whom sinful man here calls his shepherd. How great is his condescension in undertaking this office. How complete are his qualifications. How abundant his resources. How faithful his performance of all of his duties. The Lord is my shepherd. Okay, there's one aspect today that, that our great shepherd provides for us in his care that, that David introduces us to that I want us to focus on. And that's that our good shepherd promises to lead us. So today, that's what we lean into, is the idea that, that what David is saying here is so confident that our shepherd leads us. Now, last week, Danny jumped ahead with you to remind you that your good shepherd is for you. Yes, that we have a good shepherd worth boasting, who's qualified, who's capable of taking care of us, of meeting our needs. And the beauty is that he is for us, and that gives us great confidence. And we also know that he promises to lead us. Again, if you look at Psalm 23 in your Bible, here's how the psalmist says it. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. You know, a shepherd by definition is someone who's preoccupied with the care of another. And a shepherd must be preoccupied with his responsibility to lead his sheep. In that book of the, the former shepherd who then became the pastor, once a shepherd on the plains of Africa, Philip Keller, he points out that without a shepherd's leading, sheep will blindly follow each other into danger, that sheep will graze in the same field for so long until long after the grass is gone that they'll even kick up the roots to eat at them too, so then there's no hope of a green pasture there ever again. That sheep are so foolish in the way that they'll follow each other's lead that they'll drink from any water source without thinking twice whether that's stagnant water or even a little woolly friend's urine left in a depression in the ground, that the sheep need leadership. If left to themselves, they'll be in great peril quickly. And so there's four questions that we'll ask and answer this morning about our shepherd's leading. There's a why we need to ask and answer. There's a, a how, there's a where, and then there's an, a can I even trust, though, his leading. So first, the why. Why is he leading me? Why does our shepherd here offer to lead us? And we've kind of partially answered this already, haven't we? It's because we need someone to lead us. Because a sheep left to its own devices will end up following the crowd only to feel more lost than ever. Now, my friends, there's a parallel here. Think of, of people today. Think of our culture. When we follow the crowd, we find ourselves more empty and lonely than ever. Sheep, they'll be driven by an appetite, but they'll be left hungry constantly without a shepherd's leading. It's like so many today that devour everything in sight. They'll, they'll try anything to feel satisfied, but what they find instead is that they're empty. For sheep, they'll end up drinking, but never be satisfied. And Jesus would say, as he'd arrive on the earth, that you drink pleasure and are thirsty all the more, but I can give you living water that will truly satisfy you. 
Why does he lead us? Well, because I need someone to lead me. That's why. I do. Because I'm not as wise as I think I am. I'm thankful that that he sees my need, and because of that, he's motivated to give to that need and to lead me. That's why. Because I need someone too. But there's another reason he leads me, and it's simply because he loves me. You see, rather than leaving us to fend for ourselves, God sees our plight and is moved to action. I mean, some of us sometimes, I don't know if it's life circumstances or what, but we can find ourselves having a rather jaded view of who God is and wants to be in our lives. A shepherd who leads is a beautiful gift. A God who you might think of as an evil dictator is so far removed from this imagery. When you think about it, though, in the storyline of the Bible, the, the Bible itself is a book all about God. In fact, the first chapter introduces us to, in the beginning, God. And what does God begin to do? He makes this beautiful and perfect place. And what it describes in that moment is God's commitment to this place, to creation, specifically his commitment to the pinnacle of creation, humanity itself. And by the third chapter, as man's rebelling and turning their back on God, God stands up and promises that one day what we'll see, the fulfillment of that promise, is that Jesus will stand up and say, behold, I make all things new again. And that promise would cost him everything. But he's promising regardless of the cost or how it will crush me, I will come as victor and I will give sacrificially. We have to remember the character of our good shepherd, that he gives and gives and gives because of his love for us. Oh, he leads me because I need someone to lead me. He leads me also, though, because he loves me. And it says here, doesn't it, in verse 3, that he leads us also for his name's sake, because of his name. You see, the quality of the sheep was not only contingent upon the quality of the care and character of their shepherd, but hear me say this. It was also clearly displayed, it clearly displayed, the quality of the sheep clearly displayed the care and character of the shepherd for others to see. Think about it this way. In scripture, it tells us that God's glory and power are on display in creation itself. It's the psalmist David who wrote in Psalm 19, he said, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. It's amazing, creation itself revealing the glory and power of God. It's Psalm chapter 8 that David also pens, where we picture him out on a field, tending to his sheep, penning these words when he wrote, When I look to the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you're mindful of them? Mere mortals that you would care for us. You see, the beauty of God's glory, of God's power, of his character are on display in creation itself. But it's equally true that God's name and reputation are on display in the contentment of his people, are on display in the contentment of his sheep, because he leads us for his name's sake. Now think this through. In biblical Hebrew text, name in the traditional sense as we understand it and reputation are used interchangeably. Someone's name and reputation are almost synonymous. It's why oftentimes you're introduced to a character in the Bible by saying that their name was, and then as you look at their name, it'll give a description of what that name meant, and it's a descriptor of something about them, a trait about the person, something about their character, a name and a reputation 
creation were one and the same. You'd be named something that would describe your character or reputation. Even think of this as an example found in the book of Ruth, where Ruth, it, it tells the story, and there's these two boys, Malon and Chilion. Their names literally mean sickly and wasting away. And it talks about how they're always sick, and then they finally die. And you remember that their mother says, my name is Naomi, it means pleasant, but she said, from now on, I shall be only referred to as Mara, which literally means bitter, because she had lost so very much. A name and a reputation were things that were really interchangeable, because your name established your reputation. Your name described, oftentimes in ancient cultures, who you were, what kind of a person you were. He leads us for his name, for his reputation's sake. You see, the beauty is that God's care for you is motivated by a deep and profound love for you. And that love that he has for you finds its source inside of himself, which means that it's not motivated or stimulated by your good behavior that you've made yourself lovable and now he loves you. That's not it at all. It's who he is and name and nature. It's not inspired. His love is not inspired or motivated by anyone or anything outside of himself. And that kind of unique and powerful love is something he wants you to experience and something he wants the world to see. He leads us for his name's sake. Again, think of it in terms of a, a sheep and a shepherd. I've never looked at a sheep and been like, you're a beautiful sheep, but maybe that's like your thing and you know sheep better than I do. And, and you would be drawn to some beautiful and contented sheep on a hillside if you ran to it to have a discussion with it because of how contented it seemed. And you started to tell this sheep, you're, you're amazing. I just want you to know how much I admire you. You seem so settled and well and, and healthy. And in fact, Oh, I smell this fragrant oil. My goodness, please tell me of, of this scent on your wool. It's divine, this, this essential oil. In fact, did you get this from your mid-level marketing scheme? That's your side hustle. Tell me more, please. Maybe I could join with you. Now, none of us would do that for many different reasons, but we wouldn't run to the sheep in order to, to tell the sheep of, of its beauty or contentedness. We'd go to the shepherd because we recognize quite simply that the quality of the sheep, its contentedness, was not contingent upon how well the sheep was doing or how hard it was working for its contentedness or health. We know it's the responsibility of a shepherd. And if the sheep is well and contented, it's because the shepherd's doing his job well. We would go to him because his sheep would build his reputation and establish his name in the community. And when they're healthy and well, we'd go to him and say, look at the kind of care that you provide. You're someone who can be trusted. Oh, do you understand that he leads me? Yes, because I need to be led. And yes, because he loves me. But he's also doing it because of his own name, both who he is in character and who he wants to be in reputation. This is why he leads me. But the second question is how? But how does he lead me? And I'll tell you, I'm so thankful that he offers to lead me, but I'm sometimes very overwhelmed at the prospect of following God's leading, of trusting my shepherd. I was thinking this week about some of the times that God asked us as a family to take steps of faith and how overwhelming that felt. I was so thankful that I believed that God was leading. Oh, but it was hard. It was overwhelming. I'm so thankful, though, that the way that he leads is not what we think of in a Western culture. You see, when we think of livestock and we think of how they're led, we picture, probably because of too many Western movies, we picture cowboys driving cattle. 
We picture a herd of animals being moved from one place to another, a cowboy with a whip in hand, cracking the whip with a pistol that's firing, driving cattle from behind. However, sheep are not driven, sheep are led. There's no whip to crack on them, only a shepherd's staff to guide them. They're not startled by the sound of gunfire. They're directed by the familiar tone of their shepherd's voice. They're not driven from the ear with someone behind them, pushing them forward, maybe even into danger or what's unknown. No, they're led by someone who's leading the way, walking in front of them, showing them the way that they should go. It's beautiful that this is the way that your shepherd wants to lead you in this same gentle manner. He leads you with his gentle voice. It's Jesus in John chapter 10 who said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. He leads you with his gentle voice. Oh, do you hear the gentle voice of Jesus? Do you give him opportunity to speak and to lead your life? He leads you through his word. Psalm 119 says it this way. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Again, Psalm 119 in verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. It's a light to my path. Do you give your shepherd opportunity to speak to you, to lead you? He doesn't just lead us with a gentle voice and even through his word. He leads us by the spirit of God molding and shaping us. You see, my choice to follow Jesus is not just about external things. It's not just about an external experience. Other religions, they present only an external list of requirements for you to follow. But my Christian faith is so very different because the Bible makes it clear that at the moment that I believe, that I tell Jesus I'm so broken and I need to be rescued, I need to be led and saved. Forgive me of my sins. At that moment, my sins are forgiven. The the theological term is that I'm justified. It happens in an instant. When I'm justified, it's a judicial term. It's speaking of in the courtroom of God that all all of the evidence against me, Colossians says, was nailed to the cross with Christ, that I'm not guilty of any crime that hasn't already been paid for by Jesus. But simultaneously, what happens in an instant justification, there's something that begins in that moment that's not just an instantaneous thing. It's a process, and it's called sanctification, where all of a sudden God's Spirit indwells my heart. The God who once lived in temples, He no longer does. I am now the temple of the Spirit of God. Scripture makes very, very clear. And God now works in me, the book of Philippians says, both to will and to do that he's shaping my desires from the inside out, changing my will, causing me to do the things, to live the way that he desires me to live. It's what you see in the Old Testament in Psalm 37, 4, where it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. What that's looked like in my life is when I follow Jesus, when I choose to follow his leading, he plants new desires in my heart and then he fulfills those desires because he's a good shepherd. See, he's not just an external voice. He's an internal, powerful, loving, gentle work inside of me. The spirit of God that I have a relationship with, the person of God who knows me and is known by me. 
Oh, how does he lead me? Yes, it's a gentle voice of a shepherd. Yes, through his word. And then that internal work of God's spirit. Oh, it's so good to know that he wants to lead me. It's great to even know how he might lead me, but we need to know where he leads me. You see, that's the third thing. Where does he lead us? Well, the psalmist here says towards green pastures. That's a place where I can be satisfied and at rest. In verse two, he says, he leads me alongside of, beside still waters. These are clear waters as opposed to stagnant water. This is still water as opposed to rushing water that would sweep the sheep away. Even think about the way that he words it. It's beautiful and poetic. He leads us beside these still waters. It means as we walk throughout our life constantly, there is a life-giving source, perpetual access to what can quench our thirst is available to us. The beauty is that Christ comes along and says, and I am that living water who's constantly available to me, a life-giving source that's there for me, who satisfies and satiates my every desire, my deepest of needs, that I am led beside still water. It's a promise of an ever-present source of life and refreshment, which is Christ himself. Where does he lead? Yes, green pastures. Yes, still waters. Even, verse 4, through the valley of the shadow of death. He leads us even through that. Picture these narrow valleys and ravines where you can't see what's lurking around the next corner. It's saying here that he'll lead the way, not pushing you forward alone to face these things and these unseen dangers. No, he'll lead the way and he has. He has led the way. He embraced death itself for us. See, we don't face the valley of death. He faced that for us. No, we simply walk through the valley of the shadow of death. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says it this way, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we'd be wise to stop for a second and be honest. We'd be wise to stop for a second and think this through. Is what's being written here, is this promising that no child of God will ever go hungry? That no child of God will ever lack access to clean water? Well, certainly not. As difficult as it is for us to admit that, it is, however, promising every child of God unhindered access and favor with God. It's promising that he will not withhold himself from them and that he will be there to lead them. And in verse 6, it tells you, and where he leads us ultimately is to the house of the Lord where we will dwell forever. Where he's leading us to, when you think about it, where does Jesus want to lead me? He's leading us to a place of rest. And our experience of rest is not just reserved for the there and the then of his house that we dwell in forever. No, that rest is available to us in the here and the now because our shepherd, the Lord of that house, is with us now. He's even now wanting to lead us into a daily experience of rest. It's Augustine, the early church father, who said it this way. He said, O God, thou hast made us for thyself, and our souls are restless, searching till they find their rest in thee. You see, the leading of our good shepherd leads us to God himself because he is our living water. He is our bread of life. It is his house that we dwell in 
all the days of our life. You see, my good shepherd, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He makes me able to lie down and to rest. He makes rest a reality in my life. You see, rest is not based upon the reality of your circumstances, nor the peace or ease of your life. It has everything to do with the dwelling place of your mind. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, he writes about this, or she does, whoever it was who penned the letter to the Hebrews. The writer compares the nation of Israel's uh, entrance into the promised land to what it looks like for those of us who choose to follow Jesus and find salvation in him. And he or she writes and says, labor to enter into the rest that's available to you. Which is such a random or such a strange concept that I work to rest, that I labor to rest. But if you live in our world, you know it does take work to rest. And the work that it takes, the writer of Hebrews says, is the same kind of work it took for the children of Israel who entered the promised land, who even though they finally arrived at the place that God had promised to them as an inheritance, they still had battles that had to be fought. There were still problems even once in the promised land, but they knew that they fought from victory, not for it, because God had promised the land to them. They had a confidence that our God is with us and for us and he will lead us. And so this is going to fulfill his promise to us. They had such confidence in him that even in the midst of all of the threats and pressures and battles that were looming, they could experience rest in the promised land even when they weren't yet free from conflict and pain because they knew they had a faithful God who would make good of his promise. And the writer of Hebrews says, you are invited into that same kind of rest When you choose to follow Jesus, there's still battles and conflicts and problems, no doubt. But you have a good God who's with you and for you. And your experience of rest then is not based upon your circumstances or the pace or the ease of your life. Your your experience of rest is then linked to, to the dwelling place of your mind. To remember that you have a good God who's with you and for you. You see, what you think and how you think, they're incredibly important. In fact, the psalmist wrote in Psalm chapter 1, verse 2, that you and I should delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. And biblical meditation, it's very different from maybe what your yoga instructor wants you to do. When they ask you to meditate, they're asking you to empty your mind. Biblical meditation is so very different than that. It's about slowing down to intentionally fill your mind with what's true about God himself. You see, the Hebrew word that the psalmist uses again and again for meditation is a word that can can be translated of both speaking and thinking. In fact, it's translated often to murmur to oneself. It's saying speak to yourself again and again the truth of God's word. Meditate on it day and night. Think of what's true of God. Speak it to yourself. Bring it up again and again. There's so many commentators who who latch on to the imagery of a cow that will chew on the cud. They'll, They'll chew on the grass from the field and they'll swallow it. But because they've got several different compartments in their stomachs and things I don't understand, they'll bring it back up, which is the most polite way to try to explain this. They'll chew it again to get more nutrient out of it. Swallow it down to bring it up yet again. That this is the imagery of biblical meditation, that it's chewing on it again. It's, yes, digesting of it and bringing it up again to think and speak these things over and over again. I'll tell you, this is what I do every Sunday. 
Sunday evenings for me, I typically, most weeks, will take a long run in the evening. And I don't take that long run because I've got lots of energy to burn to, in order to sleep at night. I'm typically uh, physically and emotionally pretty tired by a Sunday evening. But I do it because I need to reframe my thinking. Because I need to think again about what God says is true about me. And that run is about me recentering myself on my identity in Jesus. Because I don't want to leave here going, you know what? This morning was great. We prayed together. We sang together. We looked at scripture. We worshiped. It was so sweet to be together. And then all of a sudden have that be what shifts my thinking about myself that I'm valuable. I matter. I'm doing it. God must be pleased because look at what God's doing. Because the opposite can also be true. I can leave here on a Sunday and feel discouraged or overwhelmed or defeated in my view of myself as that I'm a failure and not having value. My run on a Sunday is to take all of that and toss it to the side and think about what Jesus says is true about me. That Jesus is committed to me. That Jesus has called me. That Jesus has loved me. That Jesus never hired me. He saved me. And that's why I'm here. For me, that Sunday afternoon or evening run is about me recentering myself on the identity of Jesus, about me doing what biblically is referred to as meditation, about thinking again about the truth of God, of what he says about himself and about you too. You see, there might be lots of things in your life or mine that we wish were different or even wounds that we wished were healed. But when we slow down to fill our minds with Christ, When we slow down to fill our minds with him, our hearts begin to settle, don't they? Our hearts begin to settle where we find ourselves at rest. Oh, have you found in Christ the resting place of your soul? Have you found in him true, deep rest? Does he settle your heart? It's who, it's what he can and wants to be for you. And I say that with such confidence because Jesus is the one who showed up and says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In that moment, it was as if Jesus was shouting back at the psalmist from a thousand years before saying, David, what you penned was true. I will give you rest. I will restore your soul because I am a good shepherd. My friends, he wants you to be at rest. And that's not just with him in the future, but also it's realized and experienced in the here and now as you remember that he is with you and for you. In his beautiful book, Dallas Willard wrote uh, Life Without Lack. And in that book, he said, our confidence in God can lead us to lie down in green pastures and to rest in God putting our minds at ease because our hearts are now at peace. According to that shepherd turned pastor, Philip Keller, he said when he'd watch his sheep, his flock of sheep, he recognized that his sheep could not rest until they were free of all fear, they were free of all friction, they were free of pests, and they were free of hunger. And he said he realized that only the presence of the shepherd could provide a release from those anxieties that kept them from resting. They had to have a freedom from fear because they were easily startled and the whole flock could panic and run in the wrong direction. Oh, but we have a good shepherd and and scripture says of him that his perfect love, it casts out all of our fear. 
Oh, they needed a freedom from friction. Just as chickens have a pecking order and cattle have a horning order, sheep, it's referred to as a budding order. Sheep cannot lay down and rest if they constantly feel that they have to stand and defend themselves and run into each other. And that author, Keller, he, he wrote saying, as soon as he was present, all those foolish rivalries would go away because the focus of the whole of the flock was now towards their shepherd. Think of that imagery. Isn't it true that that's what our good shepherd does for us too? Oh, the cross, it levels the playing field for all of humanity, that all of us are, yes, equally sinful, but also equally loved. And that whole pecking order, the budding order, all that we fight for in order to be noticed and to feel that we mattered, none of it matters when our attention is shifted towards a good shepherd who's loved us and given himself for us. Oh, they needed even a freedom from pests. Sheep are tormented by parasites and insects that can easily cause a sheep to keep from resting. And sheep's little clubbed hooves, uh, they don't do the best job of picking bugs out of their fleece. So their option is either to run into thick brush hoping to knock the bugs away or to stick close to their shepherd trusting that he will eradicate those things that torment them. He would anoint them with a fragrant oil and remove the bugs and the eggs from them. It's funny that even our, our English word that's just thrown around that we're bugged by something, all of that imagery comes from livestock and cattle, from this imagery that they're bugged and bothered and kept from resting because of things they have to deal with. And we as humans, we understand this. But it's a beautiful thing that we are asked by God to cast our cares upon him, knowing that he cares about what happens to us. Oh, the peace that that gives me to be near to my shepherd and know that he'll take the things that bug and torment me and allow me to rest again because he cares about what happens to me. Oh, sheep, they can't be at rest until they're free even of hunger. Because a hungry, ill-fed sheep will always be searching for, for the next mouthful of food. And so it's the responsibility of the shepherd to provide green pastures to eat and rest in. And green pastures are not, in the Middle East, something you just find. Green pastures were something that were produced at great effort of the shepherd. This is what's beautiful, the imagery. Think of it. The sheep cannot labor to produce what they need to survive. The shepherd must do it for them. And Jesus himself, our good shepherd, would do just this. We could not give or produce what we need to survive or to be rescued or to be saved or to be made right or to belong again. Jesus would do it for us. This is the gospel. This is what our good shepherd has done for us. Oh, don't you see your shepherd's desire that your needs be met? Oh, don't you agree that, that his concern for your care, that it's beyond compare? Oh, but Trevor, can I trust it? Yeah, maybe he does want to lead. Maybe I even feel like I know how he'll lead. Maybe I even can believe you that he wants to give me rest. That's where he wants to lead. But can I really trust his leading? I mean, it sounds so very good, but can I trust him? enough to follow his lead. I'll tell you this, if the sheep were simply a gift to that shepherd, then, then we couldn't be sure of really their value to him, nor of the kind of care that he would provide for them. But for us as his sheep, we were purchased, purchased at a great price, not merely a gift. 
In 1 Peter chapter 1, it says that the ransom he paid was not gold or silver or any other corruptible thing. He paid for us with the precious blood of Christ. The only thing in the universe, so far as we know, that he couldn't just snap his fingers and make more of. Oh, salvation, it might be free to me. To belong in his sheepfold, he might have done everything to purchase me. It might be free to me, however, it cost him everything. It's Jesus saying in John 10, verse 11, that I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. I mean, you want to know why real sheep follow the leading of their shepherd? It's because they know his voice. It's because they see that he's present with them. It's because they observe his willingness to protect them, even being willing to lie down at the door of the sheepfold in order to protect them. And it's what Jesus says he does for us. Again, John 10, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come though that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. My friends, if you are so loved by your good shepherd now, if this is true, then even now, right now, entrust yourself again into his care and under his leadership and tell your good shepherd, I'm ready for you to lead me even into the places I've not yet seen. You can close your Bible. You know, there are times when sheep become determined, believe it or not, to, to not be led by anyone else, but to go in their own direction. They'll wander from the shepherd's trail that he's blazed. And often what happens to a sheep is they lose their balance and they'll roll upside down and they become what's referred to as cast or cast down. And because sheep have no side-facing limbs, they can't push themselves over to roll over. They can't push themselves up. They're just stuck upside down. And tragically, they suffer death by suffocation from excess blubber that leans down onto their lungs and internal organs. They become cast. In Psalm 42 and 43, the psalmist writes addressing his own heart, asking, why are you so cast down, O my soul? His response to himself was hope in God. In that helpless state, his response was hope in God, hope in a good shepherd. It's what David is writing in Psalm 23 when he says, he will restore your soul. He restores your soul. In fact, Peter's failure provides a little glimpse into how he'll restore your soul. It provides a snapshot of the way that the good shepherd restores his helpless and hopeless sheep. He does it with tenderness. Think of Peter being restored with patience, with grace, and with love. Oh, what happens when we, we fail to follow our good shepherd? Humanity, when they fail to follow him, finds itself helpless and hopeless like a cast sheep. Oh, but what happens when we fail to follow our good shepherd? What happens is he promises to restore us again. You see, it's implied that, that yes, while God is the restorer, that David, that humanity is the wanderer in the story. In the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, he says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him 
It's speaking of the prophetic sent one, Jesus himself, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Oh, oh, when, when you've wandered far from your good shepherd, turn again to him in his leadership in your life with full confidence that he will restore your soul. Yes, in the story, I'm the wanderer, but he is the promised restorer. And you know, the truth is for some of us, we hit moments in time in life where we feel like we failed miserably. And you might be there today where you feel like you failed God himself and no longer deserve his care or his leading in your life. But if that's you, hear the psalmist today. Your good shepherd does not restore you because of your name or your reputation. He restores you because it is his name and nature to do so. This is who he is. And he does it that all the world may look on and be struck, not by my performance or yours, but by his gracious and loving care for you. Oh, surely you have a good shepherd. Oh, the Lord, he is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of even my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus, we believe it to be true that you, our good shepherd, will care for us. We want the confidence that David had. We want to boast of the reality that you have claimed us, you have rescued us, you have brought us into not just a sheepfold, but your family. Even as we read at the beginning of this service that that you have taken slaves and made them sons and heirs together. Jesus, you've rescued us. We look your direction, God, because the truth is we need your leading. And it can be overwhelming and it can be scary in moments to follow your lead. But we're asking, God, with all humility, that you would lead us. We're asking then that you would give us the faith to take steps forward, to listen to, to obey that leading. We're asking that you'd be patient with us in revealing your your character and your love and allowing us to see your care and fingerprints all over our lives as we take those steps of faith. We need to be led, and we're so thankful that we are not led by a culture. We're not led by any other thing that's found here. We have a God who's willing to lead us. And so, God, we say then, lead ahead, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.